Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for what you're doing in the life of this church and the life of the church universal throughout the world. We thank you for the testimony of uh, Anna Cox and Rachel Yao and how you are forming in them, cultivating in them a desire to follow hard after you, to seek your face. And not only them, but how they represent the youth and the college students and the, 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 the postgraduate students and all of us in some way, to some degree, Lord. Thank you for being who you are. Thank you for all that you do in and through us and through your church. We pray, Lord, that you would cultivate in us a right mindset this morning, that we would set our things, our minds on things above, where your son, Jesus Christ, is seated, Lord. We pray this in your holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So this morning, I want you to think about traditions and rituals. I want you to think about the habits that make up your life through the lens of traditions and rituals. So just a personal question, what are some traditions that you engage in, that you practice on the daily or monthly or yearly basis? These could be personal traditions, family traditions, national, cultural, or even religious traditions. So I just want you to take three seconds and pick a tradition. All right. The elephant in the room is Super Bowl Sunday, right? Today is Super Bowl Sunday, and it's a cultural tradition in our nation that many of us will engage in this evening through the annual ritual of gathering with friends and family, gorging ourselves with food, and glorifying the competition of upwards of 22 adult men chasing an oval-sized leather ball within the confines of a well-manicured grassy rectangle. <laughs> Go Houston Astros. Just, just joking. I know, I, know, I know it's the 49ers and the Chiefs. But if you didn't laugh at that, you need to repent. All right. <laughs> Today is also Groundhog Day, another really weird national cultural tradition in our nation, and the only thing I want to say about that is, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> it's early spring, yes. Now, hopefully we all can recognize some of the rituals in our lives, the daily ones or the, maybe the monthly ones or whatnot. I mean, think about it. We all hopefully brush our teeth, right? And this is a daily ritual. Some of us eat the same cereal for breakfast each and every day. Many of us look at our phone before anything else when we wake up in the morning, and some of us watch or listen to the news daily, if not multiple times a day. In so many ways, these practices make up a good portion of our lives. And even though they're not religious in nature, we do religiously pursue them and practice them and engage in them because we believe they actually matter. We believe they matter for our health and for our relationships or for our understanding of the world in which we live. In fact, many of the habits that make up our lives are just second nature. They're, we're so deeply formed by these practices, and, and they're so deeply formed in us that we don't even think about them that much at all. We kind of go on this type of like autopilot, which can be good, but also bad, depending on the habit, the tradition, or the ritual. So think, what are some other traditions and rituals that may matter more, per se. Now, of course, I don't want to give the impression that brushing your teeth doesn't matter. It does. Please brush your teeth. But think of those traditions and rituals 
and practices that play a significant role in the shaping of our identity. That is who we are. Those daily and yearly practices that continue to shape us into particular types of persons and people, the church. You know, these things I'm asking you to think about don't necessarily have to be religious at all. Maybe it's just the way you steward time during your lunch break day to day. You know, some of us may spend that time alone, or maybe some of us might gravitate toward others for daily lunch. Either way, the choice that we make could be, and I would argue is formative, even transformative regarding our relationship to ourselves and others. Maybe it's how you get to work. So at the beginning of last year, I walked to work much more than I ever did. And this practice was a daily practice, and it was very significant for my mental health, for my emotional and physical, even my relational health. Over time, walking to work gave me time to think. I realized it gave me time to reflect and pray. And often, I would pass the same people daily, and this actually cultivated new relationships. And it was also formative for my wallet, because it helped me save on gas, but it didn't help me save on coffee shop expenses. Now, maybe you are thinking about religious practices, such as Sunday worship or community group gatherings weekly, maybe tithing. Have you been listening to the sermons lately, right? Um, Maybe daily prayer, uh, Christmas or Easter celebrations. All these are great. Whether religious, whether individual, cultural, familial, communal, traditions are important. Why? Because, again, they form us as a people. They say something about who we are. They say something about what we believe and who and what we belong to, about what we value, about what's worth remembering, what's worth celebrating, what's worth anticipating in our lives. Here at Church of the Redeemer, our life is ordered by the church calendar. And you can see on the screen, it's really hard to see all the kind of details of this, but this is a a church calendar. You can buy this. It's a beautiful calendar that comes with a daily planner through modern liturgy. You can write that down. It's called Mod, M-O-D, Lit. And it's a beautiful calendar that they come out with each year uh, in the Anglican way. But our life together is ordered by the church calendar, which is filled with many seasons throughout the church year. Seasons that are filled with traditions and rituals and practices, crosses and candles and all types of things that are formative and both transformative for us as individuals and for us as the body of Christ. Think about it this way. The seasons that begin the Christian year are Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany. We're in Epiphany right now. Together, these three seasons are filled with practices, with waiting and confession and expectation and anticipation and celebration and growth, all of which are invitations to you and I and to us together to encounter the depth of the glory of God. Think about it this way. Advent speaks to us of the last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. It's a glimpse of the real seriousness of living with consequence as we await the coming of the Messiah in this age as we await the coming of the Messiah to come. 
Christmas then asks us if we have the courage, if we have the imagination to see the great truths in small beginnings. And then epiphany, the season in which we find ourselves, is just the commentary that follows. The conviction that we have indeed seen the glory of God and that this story is good for everyone, everywhere, forever. Today, as Alan mentioned earlier in the opening of our service, we celebrate the tradition of candle moss or candle mass as it is known in the Book of Common Prayer. It's about the presentation of Jesus Christ in the temple in Luke 2, and it's also commonly called the purification of St. Mary the Virgin, because Mary is also going under a ritual as she brings Jesus into the temple to be presented. Candlemas is one of the nine major feast days in the Christian year. And in some way, it's kind of the culmination. It's the end point of what is known as the incarnational cycle, which means basically from Advent, the first Sunday in Advent, all the way to the end of Epiphany, this is called the incarnational cycle, Jesus coming into the world. And then we have the resurrection cycle from Easter all the way to Advent, essentially. And so Candlemas is kind of the end point of that incarnational cycle. And the feast always falls on February 2nd. So you'll always hear something about Groundhog Day and Super Bowl Sunday, the competing traditions of our lives in light of this church tradition in our lives. You see, in the life of the church, Candlemas is a time of celebration that is rich in meaning with several but connected themes such as presentation and purification and light. You may have, might have noticed that Father Allen was, was, was processing in this morning with the candle as it's signifying the light coming into our midst, the light coming into the world, Jesus, the light of revelation to the Gentiles as we heard read to us in Luke 2. And our altar guild has put this beautiful arrangement with a light in the center to further symbolize the light that has come into our midst. Because we celebrate Christ, who is the light of the world. And because of this, Christians have historically taken candles as an example, symbol of this truth about what we believe and value. In fact, in some churches this morning around the world, candles are blessed, they're distributed out to all the members, and they are lit and carried around the church in a congregational procession while singing the song of Simeon in Luke 2. Jesus Christ is the true light who has come into the world, who is presented in the temple. Now, there are several names by which Candlemas has been known in the history of Christianity, and all of them have something to teach us. It's a key moment in the year of our life together when we look back this morning one last time at Christmas and the incarnation, and then we're going to turn our eyes toward Lent in the next few weeks. So it's a middle point. It's also a break in our generosity series. But today, don't miss this. Jesus Christ is the Father's offering to the world. This baby child being presented in the temple is God the Father's offering to you and to us, to I. The perfect sacrifice oblation and offering for the sins of the world. 
In fact, the meeting between Simeon and Jesus in the temple in Luke 2, as we heard, represents a tension between the baby Jesus, who is God's salvation, the light for revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of Israel, but who is also, as Simeon sings, destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of hearts will be revealed. The Feast of Candlemas brings to remembrance two important events in the Gospels. One, the purification of Mary after giving birth, which, by the way, is a requirement of the law of Moses, as we'll see in a few seconds, as well as the presentation of Jesus, which was also motivated by Exodus and Leviticus, the law of Moses. But before we go into detail into Luke 2, I think it's important for us to focus on some history and background so you, we can really understand what's going on in Luke 2, 22 through 40. You see, Luke 2 is one of the few stories that have to do with Jesus' childhood. There's a lack of information throughout the scripture concerning Jesus' childhood. And I think the lack of information is a good thing because it reminds us that the Gospels are not modern biographical accounts that are interested in Jesus' childhood development. Rather, they are narratives. They are to proclaim the gospel, the good news. They do proclaim the good news about Jesus with the aim of strengthening our faith in Christ. So because they don't usually include childhood stories, we should pay attention all the more when we have anything about them. It is for this reason that the childhood stories about Jesus in Luke's gospel seek to make theological points. For instance, Jesus was born a Jew among Jews. He came under the law of Moses. And although he fulfilled the law in honoring his father and mother, Luke 2.51, his ultimate obedience was to his heavenly father. As such, our gospel lesson is easily linked to other passages for the day, Malachi and Hebrews, where the author of Hebrews tells us that God in flesh, Jesus Christ, shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The author goes on to say, For surely God was made flesh, fully human in every way, in order that he, Jesus Christ, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus Christ is a faithful high priest. And in our gospel lesson, the purification of Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as the presentation of Jesus, are important things, especially when we understand the religious and cultural background, the tradition and the rituals concerning these practices. You see, both of them, as I've already noted, uh, are kind of motivated, so to speak, by certain requirements of the law of Moses. So according to Leviticus 12 in the Old Testament, after a woman gave birth to a son, she was considered impure for 40 days. And at the end of the period, she is to bring an offering to the temple, which the priest offers as a sacrifice, basically affecting her 
purification. And in Exodus 13, God instructs the people of Israel that every firstborn male that opens the womb, whether animal or human, shall be set apart to the Lord because they belong to the Lord. You see, firstborn animals were often sacrificed under this particular law, except a few donkeys and other types of uh, animals. But humans were not sacrificed. They needed to be redeemed, so to speak. And so Exodus 13, 15 reads, Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord every male that opens the womb, but every firstborn of my sons, I, that is the Lord, redeems. Now, you might be thinking here, what does redemption in this sense actually mean? And does this mean that Jesus needed to be redeemed since he's present to the Lord in Luke 2, but he's God without sin? Like, what's going on? These are great questions. And this is why understanding the tradition concerning them makes all the difference. So let's consider a few things that'll help us understand really what's going on here in Luke's gospel. To understand this, we got to go back to Exodus. We have to remember the Exodus, particularly the part about the last plague the Lord brought upon Egypt, which was the death of the firstborn, right? So in Exodus 12, 29 through 31, after Pharaoh lost his own child, he finally relented and let the people of Israel go. So when this plague came upon the land, the firstborn of Israel, all of them were spared. Why? Only because of the what? The blood of the sacrificial lamb, which was placed on their doorposts and the lentils of their homes. If you don't know what the word lentil means, please come see Mr. Wolf. He puts these in lots of homes. Uh, In Exodus 12, this event in which death passed over Israel would be remembered and celebrated yearly as one of the most holy days in the Jewish calendar. It's known as Passover, right? But Passover was not only a time when salvation of the firstborn was recognized. Given that God had delivered the lives of the firstborn of Israel from that day forward, God instructs his people in this way, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and beast, it is mine, says the Lord. So every first male animal belonged to the Lord. And in the case of clean animals, they were to be Offered, offering, in sacrifice. Some animals, as I've already said, as well as human beings, were not sacrificed. But they were instead to be offered along with an offering of money, five shekels. It's approximately a really nice $135 bottle of scotch. Just saying, if you want to give me five shekels, I'll take it. Um, It was to be offered to the priesthood as a sign of Passover. So according to Old Testament numbers in Exodus and Leviticus, the tribe of the Levites, you might remember the Levites, right? They took the place of the firstborns. I'm going to have a little math lesson here in a minute that you're going to see on the screen. So when the tabernacle was set up and God set apart the tribe of Levi, the consecration of the firstborn 
sorry, firstborn again becomes significant. And we see this in Numbers 3, that God instructs Moses in this way, number all the firstborn males of the children of Israel from one month old and above and take the number of their names. So when the total number was done, it comes out to 22,273. So I want you to write that number down right now. 22,273. Remember it. Write it down because it's going to come in handy in a moment. 22,273. Then God instructs Moses, take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel and the livestock of the Levites instead of their, li- their livestock. For the Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. Numbers 345. So what we find here in this history is that instead of only the firstborn of the Levites being consecrated, God declares that the entire Levite tribe would be his own. They would neither be redeemed nor sacrificed, but they would serve the Lord continually in worship in the temple, in the tabernacle. And the Levites, they were 22,000 in number, and they were accepted by the Lord as a substitute for the same number of those of the firstborn of Israel, as you can see on the screen. So here's a simple math lesson for all you kids wishing you were in school today. Only the 273 firstborn of the children of Israel above the number of the Levites, the 22,000, had to be redeemed. There had to be five shekels of offering for each of the 273 non-Levite Israelites above the number of Levites. So 273 times 5 is 1,365 shekels. And that was to be given to the priests, Aaron and his sons. Now you might be thinking, well, Alan preached that we're to tithe, and now you're saying that there's also an offering to the priests? Yeah, God says both. And just to lighten it up right now, that's a lot of scotch, by the way. (laughs) So this situation shows the willingness of the Lord to accept a substitute in the place of the firstborn. The Lord accepted the lives of the Levites as payment in full toward his claim to the ownership of the firstborn. As the Apostle Paul reminds us, therefore, sorry, therefore the biblical notion of redemption included in this idea of the firstborn belonging to the Lord in a special way is dedicated to serve him. And so this is really what this passage is about in Luke 2 when we go back to Luke 2. Think about it in this way. In so many ways, this is exactly what the redemption of Jesus Christ accomplished for you and I. Jesus redeems us from our debt of sin. God accepts Jesus' life in the place of our lives. And Christ's death is the ransom of our redemption price. So the Jewish idea of the firstborn son being dedicated to God's service, it provides the historical and cultural, the traditional backdrop, per se, of our passage in Luke 2 this morning, Jesus' presentation in the temple. In addition, Luke's account of Jesus' presentation may, for some of us, call to mind the story of Samuel, 1 Samuel, where Hannah, who had 
no child, prayed to God for a son. And she said, God, if you would just give me a son, I would give him back. I would offer him to you for all his days. And then what happens? Hannah births Samuel, brings him into the temple, and he is set apart. He is lent to the Lord as an offering for all of his days. So in Luke's gospel, in chapters 1 and 2, there's a striking similarity here between Mary and Hannah's response to the Lord and the presentation of their, temp- of their children in the temple. Mary takes the role of Hannah, Luke 1, 46 through 55. It almost maps completely perfectly over 1 Samuel 1, 11 through 2, 10. And then Jesus takes the role of Samuel. Luke 2.40 and 52 map on almost perfectly with 1 Samuel 2.26. So when Joseph and Mary present Jesus to the Lord in the temple, they are in effect dedicating his life to God. Jesus will be holy to the Lord. This is at the heart of Simeon's song in Luke 2.23. Jesus will be holy to the Lord, set apart for the Lord's service. These words are words of declaration, words of fulfillment that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, that Jesus is the light for revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of God's people, Israel. Jesus is God's salvation. <clears throat> Luke's story is setting the stage for Jesus' life to be fully dedicated to his heavenly Father. As I briefly mentioned before, the author of Hebrews in our New Testament lesson speaks of the degree to which his life is dedicated to the Lord. He says, Jesus Christ, God made flesh, sharing in our humanity in every way, in order that he might become a faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. What is being implied here is that Jesus' presentation to the Lord in Luke 2 is at the same time God the Father's presentation of Jesus to the world for the life of the world, for you and for I and for us. In fact, Simeon's blessing over Jesus in the temple here in Luke 2, it picks up on that double meaning in a very bittersweet tone as he prophesies over the child in receiving him as a priest, but also declaring a warning over him into Mary. Simeon warns Mary and Joseph that their child, this babe wrapped in swaddling clothes in the temple who marks the presence of salvation in their very midst will also be the very cause of falling and rising of many. That the falling and rising of many will not be the result of a war. It will not be the result of our economic overturn or natural desire, disaster. Instead, it will come through the radical transparency of the work that Christ does for you and I. As God in flesh, wrapped in swaddling clothes, radically exposes the inner thoughts of everyone in this room. At the beginning of our service, we pray a prayer. Almighty God, to you, all hearts are open. All desires are known, and from you, no secrets are hidden. Simeon is prophesying this over Jesus Christ 
because he knows that the windows into the soul of men and women will be thrown wide open. Such revelation, such exposure would come through Jesus' offering at the cross. His presentation of himself upon a cross whereby his death, his own self-presentation would present others holy to the Lord. If there's one thing I want you to hear today, it's this. Jesus' presentation is your redemption. Jesus' presentation is our redemption. This is the ultimate meaning of Christmas. This is the ultimate meaning of Epiphany. This is the ultimate meaning of Advent and Lent and Candlemas. That God made flesh. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the firstborn of all creation, the light of the world, has come and is presented as holy to the Lord so that you and I could be made holy and presented presentable to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is why Paul says, sisters, brothers, I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord, for this is your spiritual act of worship. To offer yourselves as holy and pleasing to the Lord. On this great day, this day, Candlemas, we not only recall how Jesus was presented to God in the temple, but also that we too today are called to present ourselves anew to God in worship this very moment. To put the past and its failings behind us and to focus on living in light of the light of the world, Jesus Christ, God in flesh, who loves us and who calls us to a life of deepening holiness. So my prayer for us this day is that as we begin to look ahead to Lent and Holy Week that is on the horizon, that we would commit ourselves to follow Jesus in the way of Jesus that inevitably means sharing in his sufferings and death. May we, with the psalmist, pray, Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.